Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on May 23, 2018, focusing on early observations on business decision-making in the post-tax reform world. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, a PwC tax partner and our tax services leader, Raphael Lander, a PwC advisory partner focusing on operational consulting, Alex Velasco, a PwC tax partner focusing on value chain transformation, and Anthony Tenorello, a PwC tax partner leading our customs international trade practice. This excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on the investment decisions companies are focusing on in light of tax reform. Have a listen. Why don't we dig into the investment side? So, um, Raphael, I'm going to come to you. Um, I referenced this before. We've seen a wave of announcements immediately after tax reform, and they all had to do with how people were essentially spending sort of the benefit they were getting from tax reform. But I viewed that as just sort of the tip of the iceberg, sort of the initial reaction. As we've talked about, this has got an extended tail on it with a lot of things happening. Sort of what do you think are the key drivers or what's your view around how some of the investment decisions are going to be impacted by what's happened from a tax reform standpoint? Exactly right. To your point, to Alex's earlier point, we've seen a lot of public announcements, investor announcements with or regarding what companies are deciding to do with that cash. Most of those are shorter term type decisions that they've taken, whether it's uh, employee bonuses or um, returning cash to investors, but a lot of the more structural changes, whether it's operations footprint, uh, investments in longer-term R&D, business model changes, uh, those sorts of decisions are now being evaluated. Um, there's a big modeling component to them, and, and we'll start to see some of those structural changes, uh, particularly in fiscal year 19, we're seeing a lot of our executives, uh, executive clients right now working on their FY19 budgets and incorporating a lot of that model into those budgets. So I'm, I'm sure we'll see much more of an impact here in the coming year. And Raphael, I, I would add to that, like from my perspective, um, business decisions are being taken like every day, right? And whether we are at the table or not as tax professionals, that's just the reality of life. And a lot of times, our business counterparts, you know, just don't have the time or the patience to necessarily wait for us to complete our, you know, complicated calculus about the way these rules affect those business decisions. Um, I think the emphasis on modeling and scenario analysis in this new world has become tremendous. And we talk a lot about, you know, modeling and the quantitative analysis that's needed. I find it just completely imperative, uh, not just to have that capability, but just it's a completely different type of modeling capability that we're seeing that's needed to support this kind of decision making, where each of these provisions are highly complex, they're all interrelated. Um, the the changes in both inputs as well as just the numerous you know positions that you know could be taking in light of the uncertainty can really move the needle a lot. So, just fundamentally having that capability, both technology, you know, people trained, people within department talking to one another and modeling together to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. I mean, those, are, those have become essential to support this decision-making. Yeah. Absolutely. And everything listed here from a standpoint of being on the slide are the types of things I'm, I'm hearing out of clients. So the initial reaction was sort of incentive compensation, some of those elements, but the, the longer-term calculus in here is a lot of other things. And we sit in Washington, D.C., so we have to point out that there's sort of an inverted economic model here that suggests that stock buybacks are a bad thing 
even though they, they might not necessarily be a bad thing because we're returning money to shareholders for more lucrative investments. But it is it is an odd dynamic here. But all, all the things uh, that we see listed on the slide are, are the things that we're seeing people dig into. Um, Alex, I want to come to you and sort of carry on on this investment decision, but I'm, I'm going to hit on a theme that we're going to talk about a fair amount in the, the context of the webcast today, and that is, um, is the U.S. a more attractive area to invest in, and if so, why? I think um, the short answer is I believe that absolutely yes, and we're seeing just from early modeling um, that's definitely the case. Um, there's some you know, exceptions to that, you know, the rules themselves contain a number of sort of odd results, odd provisions that sometimes might serve as sort of perverse incentives to do certain things. But net-net, we think U.S. is definitely, you know, on the map in a big way. I think the, the decision-making as to, you know, to which extent to embrace, you know, investment and economic activity in the U.S., both, you know, in magnitude and in timing, it, it kind of depends. I think we're seeing sort of one trend, you know, companies with their existing structures, existing footprint, are kind of more cautiously modeling, trying to understand the trade-offs. I think for companies that are making new investments, that impact is a little bit more pronounced. Um, but I think what might be interesting is, uh, Raphael, as you look at the same question that Ken just posed, you know, and how do you help companies evaluate, you know, are investments created equal? Like, how do you decide between these various choices on the menu? Uh, as you and I talked, I think there's an interesting yep. sort of analytical approach to how you think of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great point. Um, what we typically do is, is work with our clients to help them define or articulate their long-term corporate and business strategy. We then take that strategy and translate it into a set of capabilities required to execute that strategy successfully. Uh, we commonly refer to that as a capabilities-driven strategy. Um, as part of that same approach, what we do is we work with our clients to identify cost transformation opportunities that will unlock funds and enable reinvestment into those capabilities that uh, were identified as part of the capabilities-driven strategy. And these might be a capability example, maybe a company looking to really rev up their uh, innovation engine and introduce new products on a much more frequent basis. It may be a company looking to uh, rev up their digital engine and digital capabilities uh, and take much more advantage of the Internet of Things and the data that their products are producing. Uh, Maybe a capability around supply chain costs and supply chain agility. Uh, so each one of those capability decisions are the, the sorts of things that our clients are thinking through. We take that analytical approach, which we call capability-driven strategy, and much more importantly now than ever before is working with our tax counterparts as we prioritize the capabilities and look for those cost transformation opportunities to unlock funds. So can I ask a question on that front? Um, I hear a lot of, the, by the way, this has been a common topic, by the way, with clients is all, access to liquidity, access to capital that they previously hadn't had, where they're going to invest that capital, does that change the thought on digital investments? Does that change the, the thought process on automation, other areas you might dig in? The question that always comes back to me is, does the presence of the cash or the change in the U.S. tax principles we're, we're talking about change the ROI hurdle that someone would have been looking at and trying to make those investments? So if you're, if you're looking to make that investment, usually you're looking for a certain return does that get adjusted some way in, in, in a tax reform world? It, it feels like with a lower rate it does, but yeah. yeah. We go ahead. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, 
I would say we typically start with the business rationale and operational rationale, uh, but then as we're working through prioritizing tax reform, certainly in tax overall, do, does play a big role and oftentimes can tip the scales between one capability or another, between one cost for transformation program or another. I do find that um, most companies I work with make those decisions purely on a pre-tax basis. I mean, that's still a reality that we live in. And we keep trying to you know, educate and this, this modeling, this quantification exercise is critical to that because, Ken, to your point, the ROI in those decisions can be vastly different once you factor it in. This is what I'm trying to unpack. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And I, I would say, you know, I don't know what, 90% of companies really focusing on pre-tax, you yeah. know? And a lot of times there is a cost associated with those decisions. You know, think about decisions to, for example, you know, relocate production capacity, right? Or shift certain elements of footprint and exit charges or just various tax costs embedded in those decisions. Or a lot of times there are really material tax cost advantages that can be neglected if, if those decisions are not made net of tax. So that's, that's where the sort of joint, you know, collaboration between business tax, I think, has become just imperative. I want to come back to that dialogue we were just having, but maybe pull it together a little bit more tangibly. So you just very accurately describe all these business calculus we're going through change as a result of what happens from a tax reform perspective. And by the way, there's a whole lot of trade considerations that come into all those yep. things too. So we can look at all these investments from a, you know, a um, raw pre-tax ROI basis and look at what's happening, but then there's a whole lot of other calculus here. So my question to you guys, because I've seen this in action, is how do you guys work together in this type of environment where tax is so sensitive to make sure that all those factors are being addressed and make sure that the decision criteria actually does take into account yeah. what's happening from I, tax I can standpoint. share my perspective, and I'm sure mm -hmm. uh, Anthony and Raphael will have theirs. So what I, what I found um, in our practice, what we try to do is a few things. Number one, just embedding each other early in that decision life cycle. I think that's critical because a lot of times, a lot of fundamental just understandings about trade-offs happen early on in the process. Um, the second thing we found is, and this is speaking as, as a tax professional, um, ability to um, concisely communicate tax impacts and be able to give the essence of impact timely. I mean, it's paramount. We, we see so many times business decision makings, frankly, decision makers, frankly, just running out of patience and just moving on because we say, like, it depends and we caveat, there's a lot of footnotes. So I think just that ability to get to the punchline, which again, if we're early at the table, and we certainly have the analytical and modeling tools to do that, like to me, those are probably the biggest things that make a difference. Yeah. Other perspectives on it? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in. So yeah, this is where I like to remind my income tax folks, you know, that customs duties isn't above the line cost. Uh, <laughs> And that the duty, the financial impact certainly could trigger duty, uh, duty and economic implications, but also the reminder that these types of changes and transformations that are contemplated also pose an operational risk from a, from a customs clearance perspective, right? So changing things around, any, any change to a physical or financial flow uh, of a good will have a, a customs implication. It's something that's not necessarily, you know, a deal breaker, but certainly needs to be considered up front in order to be able to get out ahead of, you know, the potential implications or negative ramifications. And just to provide an example, uh, we're working with a client now that's assessing its manufacturing footprint. And specifically, they're evaluating the possibility of consolidating a Mexico manufacturing site into the U.S. 
And while typically from an operations perspective, we'd look at labor costs and automation potential and proximity to customers and suppliers, distribution and logistics, et cetera, uh, in that specific example, it's critical that we work with both Alex and Anthony uh, to, to look at that from all angles. And so uh, bringing to Alex's point, uh, the, the, the entire team early in that evaluation process is paramount. Yeah, so before we move on from here, I guess just my own sort of promotional announcement, sort of looking at this and sitting through a lot of these readiness webcasts. Um, for those who are joining on the tax side, I mean, embrace it. You have been thrown into the business decision calculus to a much greater extent than what you have before as a result of the complexity of these provisions, the benefits that are coming from tax reform, and all the um, sort of interrelatedness of all these provisions coming together. So, Alex, you made the point before, we really don't have the flexibility to sort of sit back and, and overthink. Sometimes we have to move at business speed to sort of do some of these. And we've got to embrace the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty in trying to work through it. So it is, it's, it's a unique time to be a tax executive right now. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.